You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Bible, you can turn to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 7. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, we are going to take a few weeks to go through uh, as we come into Christmas and Advent season. Uh, we're going to look at a few passages from Isaiah this Sunday and the next few as well. Uh, so I would encourage you to, to be with us and to hear from these. I'm excited to, to see what God has to show us through them. I don't know how many of you like Christmas movies. Some people love Christmas movies. Some people hate Christmas movies and can't stand them. I'm sort of in the middle. I'm a home alone person myself. Um, But I was going through Netflix a couple days ago to see what sort of Christmas movies are out there. And they have some standard movies like White Christmas, things like that. They have corny ones like Santa Paws and stuff like that. Some story about dogs. But one that stuck out to me that was seemed really out of place, and maybe this is just because of the type of movies I tend to not like, uh, was one called A Christmas Horror Story. That's literally a movie that is on Netflix. It's called A Christmas Horror Story. And to me, that just seems bizarre. Like, I don't like scary movies in general, but to mash up a horror movie with Christmas seems very, very out of place to me. Because when I think of holidays that have to do with fear, being scared, things like that, Christmas would be the literal last one. Uh, Halloween obviously would be first. Christmas would be nowhere near the top. We don't typically think of fear and Christmas. We don't think of terror and Christmas. They don't seem like they go together, at least to me. Uh, But as I was thinking more about that, when you actually take time, and I would encourage you to do this the next few weeks, take time to actually read the Christmas story in the Bible, especially in Matthew and in Luke, you actually see, I think you'll see this if you read it, that fear is very much present in those stories. That's very much on the surface. It's not hidden. It's not... uh, It's not a foreign concept in the Christmas stories. All of the main characters pretty much are explicitly told at some point in the story, do not be afraid. If you've read those stories before, Joseph has told it in Matthew 1. Zechariah has told it in Luke 1. So has Mary. Uh, The shepherds are told it in Luke chapter 2. And there's other places it appears in that story. uh, Of Fear is very present in the Christmas story, even in the word of God. And today we're going to speak about that because we all have fears, Uh, whether we like to acknowledge it or not, whether we like to admit it or not. uh, There are some fears within all of us. Uh, Some may be small, some may be large, some may be in a moment, some may endure uh, over a lifetime almost, but all of us have fears. And we may think that Christmas, the Christmas story, has nothing to speak to those, that it has nothing to address those, that those are just detached realities. My fears and Christmas, they don't cross paths. Um, But I think what we'll see from this text is that they very much do. Uh, the, The coming of Jesus into our world has everything to say to us as people who are afraid, as who have things that come in and out of our life that strike fear in us. The, the Christmas story has everything to teach us about how we face those fears, how we think about them. And the coming of Christ teaches us to deal with them. But you may think, if you know much about the Bible, you may find it odd that we're going to spend a couple weeks in Isaiah to talk about the birth of Jesus. Because if, if you're familiar with the Bible, Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus was ever even born. 
Uh, he was long, long, long before Jesus would ever be born. And so we may naturally read Matthew or Luke, those type of, of parts of the Bible that were contemporaries and, and we're talking to eyewitnesses of what happened with Jesus. But Isaiah is a wonderful text of scripture that's actually by many people come to be known as the fifth gospel. If we have four gospels, records of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Isaiah has come to be known as the fifth, even though it came way before. And it's, it's for good reason, because Isaiah was given these insights by God, by the Holy Spirit, uh, to see into the future to see what was going to happen to the nation of Israel, but even more so to see what this Messiah was going to be like, the one that they had been promised, the one that God had told them was going to come. Isaiah got very, I mean, beautiful glimpses, but very specific glimpses into what that person was going to be like and what their origin would be and how they would live and what they would accomplish, even how that person would die. And we're going to look at a few of these passages that were said, recorded by Isaiah 700 years before they ever even took place. But they're very specific and have much to teach us as we think about Christ actually coming and him fulfilling those things that Isaiah said. And so at this point in the story, we're going to read, <clears throat> excuse me, in Isaiah chapter 7. But I want you to just know real briefly who in the world Isaiah is, uh, where we're dropping into this story at. Real basics. God had, had rescued this nation of people that came to be known as Israel. And he had established them and had made them boom in numbers. And, and, and uh, they, he put them in this promised land miraculously. He let them come into this place where they could live and flourish and thrive. He'd given them a law to follow, guidance of how to live their lives and arrange themselves as people. He'd given them kings to rule over them uh, that, that could rule and, and take charge of things. He'd given them a temple in the city of Jerusalem where he came and took up residence with them. He gave them all of these gifts upon gifts upon gifts that they did not deserve. That It's not that they merited them, but God just gave them over and over and over these blessings upon blessings. But you see leading up to the time of Isaiah that things... Once they got into that promised land and generations started rolling by, things unraveled, didn't they? If you read through the Bible, you see that the people, even the rulers themselves, but the whole nation started to drift away from God. They started to forget how great he was. They started to wander away from the ways he called them to live. And God started in kindness, he didn't have to do this, started sending them prophets like Isaiah. He started sending them these godly men who could speak sometimes to the kings themselves, sometimes to the people, and start calling them to change, to wake up, to see what they're doing and the ugliness of it and the danger even of it, and that God was not just going to permanently sit by and watch, that if they didn't repent and turn, he was going to bring judgment upon them. He was going to bring discipline, discipline upon them as a people. And Isaiah is one of those men that was sent by God. Uh, he was sent to address sin, to give hope even though in the midst of that, to say this is what God is going to continue to do even in spite of you. And in spite of your disobedience, God's going to continue to do these wonderful things. And this situation we're going to read is him addressing one particular king named Ahaz. Uh, Ahaz was a king, as we're going to see down. The, the people of God had kind of split in two by this point in time. There was a southern tribes southern kingdom called judah where jerusalem was which has been in the news this week i'm making zero comments about that uh, but it was their capital uh then uh that where god's kings would reign and where this ahaz reigned 
uh, that Isaiah is going to come and speak to. But there's these threats looming, even with the northern kingdom and some others that want to come and threaten Jerusalem and take over it. And so that's the situation. We're going to read a couple verses, and then we'll pause, make sure we're on the same page, keep doing that. But there's going to be much, I think, that God wants us to see about fear that's within us because we're going to see fear in Ahaz and in the people of God and how God speaks hope to them, speaks promises to them that he wants them to believe. So first I'm going to read the first two verses of Isaiah 7. You can follow along with me. And if you don't know, if you can't track along totally with who all these people are and who their dad is and their granddad is and all that stuff, it is okay. I'll try to read it and explain, make sure we're on the same page. But this is how Isaiah 7 starts. It says, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Now, when the house of David, that would be the king, Ahaz is a descendant of David, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. This is an interesting story. And you see right up front, fear is going to be front and center. It's going to be the thing that, that God's going to use Isaiah to address in Ahaz and even in these people. Because what's happening here is there's this King Ahaz, who's the king over the southern kingdom of God, where Jerusalem is. Uh, he's the king of that area. He's the descendant of David. Uh, but he would have had a very prominent role. He's responsible for his people but he hears that there is this threat from the northern kingdom that once it's called Israel, the rest of the time it's going to be called Ephraim, uh, that they are threatening to join with the nation of Syria to come and take over Jerusalem. That's what they're starting to plan. That's what they're starting to want to do. And the king of, the, of Jerusalem and that southern kingdom, Ahaz, hears about this, and understandably so because his nation was probably in a very vulnerable spot at this point in time. He is afraid. And Isaiah, as he often does in very picturesque terms, uses this image where he says that the heart of Ahaz, verse 2, and then the heart of his people even, he says, shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And this isn't just like imagining a calm breeze where leaves are just sort of blowing in the wind. This is imagining a storm where you've probably seen before where trees start to shake and there's this force that you almost can't even see of the wind coming in. Isaiah is recording that inside the heart of Ahaz and even inside the hearts of his people as they heard about this threat of Jerusalem getting taken over, that's what their hearts were like, that they're getting shaken to their core and they are afraid. They are terrified of what may happen. What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to our kids? We're in a vulnerable spot. We don't know what to do here. And so fear grips their hearts. Next, we're going to see, I want to read a little bit more this time, what God does, how he addresses that, because he's in kindness going to send Isaiah to this fearful king, to this guy who is so terrified of what may take place. God in kindness is going to send Isaiah to him to try to address that, to give encouragement and hope to him. And so this is what takes place next. It says, The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jashub, your son, 
at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, this is what God wants Isaiah to tell the king, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And then hear the specificity of this. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. And then he ends by saying this, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. I know there's a lot of names in there, and some of us are just reading that for the first time, so I, I won't explain all of it. But this is the situation that happens. God in kindness sends Isaiah to come speak to this king, and he brings his son with him. Uh, there's reason to that that has to do with his name. Uh, but he brings his son with him, and he wants Isaiah to give a very clear message to this fearful king. And the message... Uh, it's helpful sometimes to know a little bit from other parts of the Bible to fill out the picture. Because if you read in 2 Kings chapter 16, for example, you can read about more in depth about Ahaz, this king, and what he was like. And what, even in this moment where Jerusalem's getting threatened, what he was being tempted to do, the, the action he was being tempted to take. Because what he was feeling tempted to do, and what Isaiah is going to speak into, is what, what Ahaz was thinking about doing was reaching out to the foreign king of Assyria, not Syria, the one that's threatening him, but to the king of Assyria, which is this growing empire that's starting to loom as a threat in this part of the world. It's growing in power. And Ahaz is tempted as he feels threatened by these two smaller nations and feels vulnerable himself. He's tempted to reach out and butter up the king of Assyria and say, hey, we'll be kind to you. We'll give you gifts. And that's actually what he ends up doing. We'll give you gifts. We'll be kind to you. We'll give you whatever you want, but protect us. Like, take care of us. Like, have our back uh, if, if this conflict takes place. That's what Ahaz is being tempted in real time to do as to say, I'm going to go around these guys and I'm going to find somebody stronger. Kind of like if you're in a school as a kid and there's kids who are picking on you who are just kind of annoying, but you don't really know what to do with them. But there's this big, bad bully uh, that you butter him up and say, hey, I'm going to be nice to you. So when these kids are bothering me, you, you protect me. You t even though you hate his guts, even though you don't like him, you know he will intimidate the people who are intimidating you. And that's what Ahaz is being tempted to do, to get clever and to get kind of political and butter up to this king of Assyria. But what Isaiah comes and tells him is about the exact opposite of that. He tells him, verse 4, be careful, be quiet. And that doesn't just mean don't speak. It's, it's this idea of stillness, inactivity. He says, be careful, don't do anything. He says, do not fear and don't let your heart be faint. And then he ended what we read by saying, if you're not firm in faith, that's what he wants to see 
in Ahaz. If you're not firm in faith, you're not going to be firm at all. You could try to get clever. You could try to reach out to this king of Assyria that you think is your savior. You can do that if you want, but that's not going to lead to strength. That's not going to lead to protection for you as the leader of God's people. And so what God addresses and what he calls forth in Ahaz is inaction. It's confidence in God himself that God will protect the nation of Judah. That God will protect Jerusalem. That God will take care of them even when their hearts are shaking. God wants Ahaz to trust him. And to not try to just take it into his own hands. He wants him to trust him. And it's not as if Isaiah is ignorant of the threat. Right? It's not as if he's trying to pretend like, oh, this is no big deal. Uh, You're just overreacting, Ahaz. He knows it's a serious threat. I mean, the language he uses in verses 4 and 5 and 6, he's acknowledging the seriousness of this threat. He's saying things that they have fierce anger against you, that they're devising evil against you, that they are plotting to conquer you and to kill you. He, He knows that they're wanting to set up another king in the place of Ahaz, and in that day, that would have meant Ahaz was going to get killed himself. He, Isaiah knows the seriousness of this threat that is looming, but even in the face of that, he is t- calling him to be still, to be quiet, to not be afraid, to trust that God will take care of you. And it, it culminates in this call for faith, this call for trust in God and the promises. Because as you notice, he says... I mean, one thing he says is he tries to indicate maybe these people aren't as strong, at least over the long haul, as you think they will be. In verse 4, he calls them smoldering stumps of firebrands when maybe uh, Ahaz is imagining them as he's just permanently enduring burning things. They're just going to consume them. He calls them smoldering stumps of firebrands, even though the threat is serious. He knows that. But he says in verse 8, he's helping Ahaz look a little bit into the future and says, hey, within 65 years, that nation, one of those nations you're so afraid of, that northern kingdom, they're going to be wiped out. Like you think there's some big bad people, they're going to be wiped out. And he's saying in verse 7, the very start of verse 7, he says this thing you're so afraid of will not happen. Like I, God is telling him it will not happen come to pass. God is saying that to him. And he's calling him to believe it and to trust him. But we're going to see how now Ahaz responds. And this passage is going to have one of the most famous uh, Christmas-related quotes from the Old Testament. That's why we picked this passage. You're going to see verse 14 in here is where Isaiah is going to say, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. That promise is right here. We're about to read it, but I want you to understand who it's being said to and why it's being said. Okay, so let's follow verse 10, and we'll end at 17. And then we'll, that's where we'll be done with the text for today says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. And so this is seemingly through Isaiah, but it's God speaking to Ahaz. Verse 11. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, this is Isaiah's response to that. Hear then, O house of David, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? And here's the famous quote. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people, upon your father's house, such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. The king of Assyria. That's how he ends down. That's what he's going to bring upon you. The one you're reaching out to for help, he's going to bring him upon you in judgment. And this is a fascinating passage, what happens here, because God, again, in kindness, is, is through Isaiah. He's, he's offering Ahaz, this fearful king, he's saying, I want you to believe me. I want you to have confidence in me that I will take care of you, that I'll protect you, that I'll defeat these enemies that are, you're so afraid of. I want you to have confidence. So I'll give you a sign. I'll give you anything you ask, Ahaz. Ask for something, I'll do it to prove to you that I am strong and that I am going to do and I'm capable of doing what I said I'll do. And he tells him, ask for anything. As deep as Sheol, which was somewhat like a hell for them, or as high as heaven, he says, ask anything. I'll do it. And Ahaz's response seems noble, doesn't it? He says in verse 12, I won't ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. That seems really noble. I don't need to do that. I mean, I don't, I don't want to test God. But Isaiah sees right through this. Uh, you read through that passage I referenced earlier, Second Kings 16. You see Ahaz is not a man of faith. This guy was offering his own children as sacrifices. And he eventually sold out the temple of God and gave things away to this king. This is not a man of faith. When he says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test, it's not a sign of faith. It's essentially a religious way of him saying thanks but no thanks. That I know how to take care of this. I'll figure this out. I'm the king after all. I will figure it out, Isaiah. I don't need your signs. I don't need God's signs. I'll figure it out. It's a religious, kind of pious-looking way of saying that. And so that's why Isaiah turns the tone of the conversation in verse 13. And he says, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Did you notice back in verse 10 when he was speaking to them, speaking to Ahaz, he said, Ask a sign of the Lord your God talking to Ahaz, and when Ahaz shows that he has no faith now, Isaiah doesn't talk about God as your God, Ahaz, anyway. He talks about him as my God, and because he, he knows Ahaz doesn't trust the Lord. He knows Ahaz has no confidence in God, and Isaiah says, you are wearying my God. He's trying to patiently give you signs and to say, I'm going to protect you, and I, I will protect you, and you are just rejecting him and ignoring him and disobeying what he's telling you to do, and you're trying to come up with your own response, your own way to protect yourself and your people. And he says then in verse 14, God's going to give you a sign. God, and he start, Isaiah starts looking further into the future, and he's saying that someday God is going to give a miraculous sign that he can protect his people from anything. 
that he can defeat any enemy who will come against his people and that his people can trust him to do it, that he is strong to do it. But the sign he says that he will give is not that he's going to raise up some strong army or he's going to raise up some ruler because that's the type of stuff Ahaz is is thinking they need to be protected. He says what he's going to give them as a sign of his power to protect them and to defeat enemies is a baby. He says, I'm going to send a baby as a sign to you. But the sign is going to be not just in this being any baby, but it's going to be demonstrated. God's power is going to be demonstrated in that it will be conceived within a virgin. So I was trying to think of ways to explain that to kids. I'm not even going to attempt to. Just know this is a supernatural way uh, above and beyond that the Lord is starting the life of his child. And all of us grown-ups know exactly what I'm talking about. That, that this is God showing up in a miraculous way to begin the life of this child. That's showing supernatural power. But he's also saying that this baby is going to be named by his mother, Emmanuel. That means God with us. And this is this hint that this baby is not just going to be some baby destined for greatness, but from the get-go, he will be God. And he's going to be God's presence coming in to dwell with humans and to show himself as a human, but to show his power eventually, to show his ability to defeat all enemies of God's people. But he's going to start as a vulnerable baby in the womb of a virgin. And God's saying, that is going to be the sign that I give you someday, Ahaz, that I'm going to give to all people of my power to save. And it's going to look way different from what you think. And way different from what you think uh, needs to take place. It's going to come through a vulnerable little baby who is going to be God's presence with you. And you get hints even in verses 15 and following that when this person finally enters into the world, it's not going to be into prominence and to, to beautiful situation and stability and whatnot. He's talking about how when this boy reaches this young age where he can tell good and evil. He's going to be eating curds and honey. That's not a sign of prosperity, but just of living off bare minimum and what the land's producing. Uh, And he's saying that the lands that you are dreading right now, Ahaz, when this baby comes into the world, they're going to be long since gone. They're going to have overrun. They're going to have been taken over by the enemies uh, that you fear now. And he even tells them at the end in verse 17, Ahaz, the ones you're turning to for help that you think you're going to find strength in and that your fears are going to be resolved in, they're going to turn on you. What I'm going to bring up, that's why he says the king of Assyria at the end of verse 17. That is going to come back around to bite God's people. When they turn to these foreign powers for help, he's saying, why do you trust them? They're going to turn on you. Uh, But I am going to send this baby someday and he's going to be assigned to you of my power to save. And I want you to have confidence as you fear any enemy that the Lord is stronger than them, that the Lord will protect you and you're going to see it in the life of this baby that comes. Eventually, uh, well not eventually, but as, even as Isaiah says this and records this, this promise starts to, to slowly take root in God's people and it becomes more and more well known that someday a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son. And that's going to be the Messiah. It's going to be God coming to dwell with us. But then it's hundreds of years of waiting. 
this prophecy is given by Isaiah, but then they do get destroyed. They do eventually get taken over. Those northern kingdoms do, but so does Judah. So does Jerusalem, this place where Ahaz was. But eventually, in the Christmas story, that is not a make-believe story. It is a true story. There's a virgin who's named Mary, who has an angel come and visit her and says, you are about to conceive a son in your womb, and he shall be called Emmanuel. And that happens. And God enters into the womb of a young teenage Jewish girl who's in the descending line from King David. A a baby comes into her womb. And then when he is born, they name him Jesus, but he's also in a bigger, grander sense referred to as Emmanuel, God with us. He's not just some special baby with a bright future and some great hope. He is God coming into the human race and coming into our world. And this is getting beyond this text, but I, I want you to know that as the story, as he grows up, he gives sign upon sign upon sign of his power to overcome any enemies, anything, anyone that his people may be afraid of. He shows over and over again his ability to overcome those things and to defeat those things. And his life culminates in what he came to do. Think about this. What city does his life culminate in at the end of his life? Jerusalem, right? Where this conversation would have taken place between Isaiah and Ahaz. And Jesus, much like Ahaz, but on a bigger and grander scale, has the forces of evil coming against him. He has not just some foreign king who has a big army, but he has Satan himself coming against him. He has all the powers of evil coming and seeking to take him out and put him to death. And if anyone would have had reason to fear and start to try to get clever and dance around it and get out of it and maybe call down angels to keep this bad stuff from happening, like Ahaz seems like he wants to get clever and creative and political. If anyone would have had that temptation, it would have been Jesus. He did not deserve to die. He didn't deserve to have this evil come against him. But he responded the way Ahaz was supposed to respond. Because God was telling him, God was telling his son, be calm, be quiet, don't get clever and try to get out of this. Let the forces of evil come against you and I will vindicate you. And Isaiah later in his, his record in Isaiah 53 gives this image of Jesus. He saw it in advance and said that like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And that's that's what Jesus did. This, This one that had been promised that was born of a virgin. When evil came against him and when fear was tempted to rise up within him and him to get desperate and bail and figure out some way out of it, he accepted what the Lord had for him and he trusted and trusted himself to God the Father. I said, even if death comes to me, I'm confident you're going to raise me up on the other side of it. And he faced death. He, he let the forces of evil come against him, but he trusted. He was firm in faith as he went to the cross and took our sins upon himself. And God rewarded that by raising him up from the dead a few days later, never to die again. And that is the ultimate sign of his power over the greatest enemies. That's the sign of his power over death, over sin. Over Satan, God demonstrated his power over all enemies of God's people. That are greater than this king of Syria that Ahaz was so afraid of. 
that are stronger than this king of the northern tribes that Ahaz was so afraid of. God was demonstrating in the death and the resurrection of this Messiah that had been promised that he was strong enough to conquer anything and that he is trustworthy. Even if he lets us come into suffering and lets fear come, that he deserves to be trusted. And so today, I I want us to hear from this text the message that was supposed to come to Ahaz and that did was fulfilled in Christ, and now that comes to us is this, to fight your fears with faith in the promises of God. Fight your fears with faith in the promises of God. And for us, as far as application, I want to think of a few things of how we think of fear in our life in light of this story and God's sign that he's given us. The first thing that I would want to encourage some of you to consider that maybe you often are not willing to do is to face your fears. To acknowledge the fears that are within you because we all have them. Sometimes we like to think that we need to be tough, that we need to be hardened, that we can't acknowledge when we are afraid. But fear comes in all shapes and sizes, doesn't it? There's so many things that I fear. There's so many things that you likely fear as well and some may be they might be irrational things they might be phobias things that we have that, that that aren't rational but most of our fears have some legitimacy to them don't they it's not that we're just pulling things out of air that we're just imagining things to be afraid of there are real things to be afraid of in this life just like there was real fears for ahaz in this situation there are real fears that we face in our life there Just to name a few or several, there is a fear of death that we have, that all of us have. And that is a legitimate fear, because death is coming for all of us. We have a fear, many of us, of sickness or disease. That is a legitimate fear that can come to us. We're, We're fearful at times of financial hardship or financial ruin. Fearful of being rejected by people, isolated from those that we love. We're fearful of getting embarrassed. We're fearful of failing. We're fearful, for good reason at times, of people mistreating us, hurting us, saying bad things about us. We're fearful of particular individuals in our life at times who have hurt us. We're fearful, as I was for a stretch of my life, of evil spirits. Sometimes we're even fearful of God himself as we think about sin in our life. There are things that some are not legitimate fears, but many fears we have are legitimate fears. There are things that could take place, things that could happen to us in a broken world. And I want you to know that it is not the absence of fear that we should strive for. It's not as if we should imagine that the the pinnacle of godliness is having no fear. Because we live in a fearful world. We live in a place where bad things can happen to us and do happen to us at times. And there's reason at times to be afraid. But what we should strive for is that when we experience fear, when those things come at us and haunt us or, or strike fear in us, we ought to address them. We ought to not just say, well, I can't do anything about that. We ought to face those fears and acknowledge them and address them. Psalm 56.3 says this. It says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. 
when I am afraid. That's the word of God. That there will be fears that come up within your heart. That will rise up within my heart. But we are called to trust in the Lord in the midst of those. And we don't gain peace or strength over our fears. Firmness uh, in our in the face of our fears, by just downplaying the seriousness of the threats. Like, oh, it's no big deal. That's not going to happen. There's no way that will ever take place. I don't need to worry about that. That's not how we find peace as God's people. It's by pretending those things won't happen to us, because they might. But the way that we find peace, the way that we find confidence and firmness is by having faith in the promises of God and having confidence that He is with us as we face those fears. And so... As we face our fears, we also need to find promises that God has made to us. God was trying to give promises to Ahaz. And he did give a promise to his people of this Emmanuel, this this rescuer who would come. And God gives promises to us as well in his word. God has given us promises that we ought to learn and know so that when fear comes up in our hearts, we have those promises of God to take to him and to even speak to ourselves to say, this is true. And it can help me to address the fear that I have in my heart. If you have a fear of death, for example, as I think we all do at times, no passages like Romans 8, 11, where it, Paul wrote this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so there's this promise that not that you won't face death, but there's this sure promise that if God raised Christ from the dead, someday he will raise you from the dead. And that will not make you pretend like death won't come to you, but it will give you strength that even if it does, God is going to raise me up. And that can help me to address the fear that I have in my heart. If you fear financial ruin or hardship, learn passages like Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6.30, where Jesus had just been looking around at the, the flowers of the field and says, look at these guys. They don't toil or spin, but God clothes them. And then Jesus says this, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will they not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? That's the Lord Savior Jesus saying and giving a promise that God will look out for his people. Not that he's going to give extravagance, but God will care for his people. Now, when you are seeking to find God's promises to address your fears with, I want to forewarn you, you're not going to find a lot of promises that speak really specifically into your circumstance. That, that promise you very, very, very particular outcomes. You will not find that. Uh, God doesn't speak in that way. But often what God does promise us in his word is how he will treat us. It's how he will relate to us. And there is promise upon promise upon promise of that in the scripture. And we have it even within this text. That he will be with us. He says that in various ways throughout scripture. That he will be with us. And so we need to fight as we feel fear rise up within us. When it does come, fight against that with promises that God has made to us. Commitments he has made to us as his people and to us individually. And to have confidence that he is, in the spirit of this text, he is with us while we face those fears. While we deal with them and try to process them, he is with us. And that is a greater promise than any sort of relief he'll give to some circumstance or some protection he'll give you from a person. That He doesn't promise that stuff in the Bible, but he does promise he will be with you in the midst of those. 
And I don't know about you, but I would rather have, and I say this with as much sincerity as I can, that I would rather have suffering with God than prospering without him. And he promises, even if our fears sometimes come true, that he will be with us. And I would rather have that than have the removal of all my fears and hard things that could come to me and not have the Lord. But I, if I have him with me, I can face anything. I can face any fear because he is with me. The last thing I want to say is this, is if you are afraid, I want to encourage you to tell other people about your fears. Sometimes Fear is something that when it rises up within us, we tend, at least most many of us as human beings, to isolate ourselves. To be embarrassed by that fear and think, nobody will understand that. That's just dumb of me, it's immature of me to be fearful. I don't, I don't need to talk about that with anybody. And you can very quickly, and I've had this happen in my life, become an echo chamber of fear in your own head and heart. Where you just start reminder, reminding yourself of what could happen, what could happen, this could take place, this might unfold this way. And you just sit in this bad place when you're left to yourself often. Uh, where fear just consumes and grows and consumes. But what we need to do is to speak those fears to other people to be open and acknowledge them because Emmanuel means God with us not God with me not as if I just need to just mount up this courage purely on my own and me and God we got this but he is with us and he's given you people around you when you're forgetting the promises of God when you're forgetting that he's with you and the things that he has told you he will do and be for you you need other people to remind you of those things you, you need to be open about your fears and to share them. And when people share their fears with you, don't mock them. Don't ridicule them. Don't act. As, if it's a child who comes to you with fear, don't dismiss that as some just irrational thing. Or if it's a grown-up who comes to you with fears that you don't think that they should have, don't dismiss that if there's some fool or some ungodly person but seek to comfort them seek to encourage them seek to help them find the promises of god that they can know and that they can cling to we need to be helping and having compassion on the people around us who are afraid rather than ignoring them and abandoning them so we are to fight our fears with faith in the promises of god i I was thinking of this and the lord i think brought this to mind last night even late as i was thinking about this sermon and this idea of fear and faith and i was thinking of christmas movies again i don't typically do that but uh there's one i read an article uh, where someone had made an observation about the charlie brown christmas special uh i I read this article a couple years ago and uh, it was brought to mind last night and i read it again and i wanted to share this with you because some of you may watch that as a tradition i don't know uh but there's this scene and you can look it up if you'd like to. And there's this very subtle thing that happens towards the end of the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Uh, Charlie Brown, the main character, is just feeling perplexed that he cannot figure out what the real meaning of Christmas is, what it's really about. And one of the other characters, Linus, says, essentially, I know what it's about, and I'm glad to share it. And they're in this place where everybody it's a crowd and everybody's listening. Um, and what Linus does is he, he goes over into the spotlight and he starts from memory, supposedly speaking the part of the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. And the reason I mention this and what this author of this article pointed out is if you know about Linus, 
the character, if you, if you can't remember, I always got them mixed up, but Linus is the character in Peanuts who is forever holding that security blanket with him. If that helps jog your memory, he always has that light blue security blanket. And characters repeatedly in Peanuts have tried to get him to get rid of that thing. Like, you don't need this. Why are you carrying it around? Why are you afraid? Uh, why, why do you need that thing? But he keeps holding on to it, and he keeps holding on to it, and seems to have this fear within him for some reason of dropping this blanket and letting it go. But if you watch this, and it is subtle, you can watch it, you can check me on this. When Linus is, is reciting Luke chapter 2 for the crowd, he gets to the part in the story, it's a very famous story, where uh, Luke records that the angels come to the shepherds that were in the fields nearby, uh, outside Bethlehem. And when Linus, you can watch this, when Linus says the word, fear not, that the angels said to the shepherds, you can probably anticipate where this is going, he drops his blanket onto the ground. And he, he keeps going. You see this like joy in him, it seems like, is on his face as he records that we bring you good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And he dro- he's dropped the blanket. The, the thing that he has held on to, this fear, this symbol of fear in his life, it seems like, and this is a cartoon character, I know, but when he, when he realizes that Christ has come into the world, he has confidence that he doesn't need to be afraid that he doesn't need to cling to the fears that have been with him his whole life, that, that he's refused to give up. He has confidence. Because Christ is coming to the world, he can let it go. And he picks it back up, I think, so it's not on the stage. He goes off stage, and then him and his friends go out. And I was wondering as I was watching it, is he just going to take it back up like he always did? But they go out, and some of you may remember this. They put up a little Christmas tree, and they sing a song at the end. And if you pay attention... His blanket is not anymore in his hands, but it's wrapped around the bottom of the Christmas tree like a tree skirt. And it seems like he's let go of it and he's remembered, man, I don't need to be afraid because Christ has come into the world. And I, I want that to be true of us as we remember and as Ahaz should have remembered, we, we ought to have confidence no matter what we're afraid of. I don't care how great of an enemy it is or how hard of a reality it might be that you're facing because there are hard things we face. I want us to have confidence that Christ has defeated our greatest enemies and we have no need to hold on to our fears, but we can come to him and say, Man, even if you let this stuff, this hard things come to me, I have confidence you've conquered my greatest enemy. That you have defeated my sin. You've put it to death. You have shown Satan how small and puny and weak he is. And you have defeated death. My ultimate enemy, you've defeated death. And I can have confidence as I face lesser enemies, as I face smaller fears, that you are with me as I do. And may we have a willingness to fight those fears that rise up within us with confidence that the Son of God is with us and that he is for us.